Tonight's reading from the New Testament is Matthew 2, 1 through 15. It's found on page 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ, the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, and that I too may come and worship him. Then after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it rests over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good evening, everybody. My name is Ryan. I serve as one of the elders here at Grace Downtown and also a pastoral intern, and it is my joy to be able to be up here uh, to share the word with you all tonight. You know, December 26th has always felt like a bit of a strange day for me. Um, The Christmas season is always very long and developing. I feel like it starts, you know, earlier and earlier every year. At some point, you hear a Christmas carol in the background in November. And then it slowly starts escalating, and there are decorations everywhere, Christmas trees all over the place. And then, you know, when COVID doesn't ruin it, we start preparing for time with family and friends, doing lots of baking and cooking and everything else. And then the day comes, and it's great, and it's climactic, and then all of a sudden, like, it's over. We had a conversation this morning, like, should we take down our Christmas tree already? Didn't feel quite right. Um, But we're going to look together tonight at the next chapter in Jesus' story, because similarly, as a lot of us kind of have a come down after Christmas, his story takes a pretty abrupt turn as we look through Matthew 2 tonight. We'll be thinking about what happens next. How do we move forward in a way that honors everything we've been reflecting about over the Advent season? So yeah, we pick up our story uh, in the very next chapter of Jesus' young infant life, This is uh, shortly after the miraculous and beautiful and celebratory birth with all the fanfare that went with it, but then things take a turn. It's looking bleak. It doesn't take long for this promised Savior to become a refugee. 
We're going to be looking particularly at these uh, last few verses that Debbie just read for us from Matthew 2, looking at what happens next in the story of Jesus, the promised Savior, give us a little context and guidance as we move forward from the seasons. Will you all pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the precious uh, and miraculous gift of your Son, and we pray that we would carry that forward into the days and weeks ahead, and Lord, we pray for your blessing over this time as we reflect on um, his ministry, even as it started as an infant. Please send your Holy Spirit among us, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So there are two different levels to the story of what's going on here in Matthew 2. And on the one hand, on the human level, the key character of the story on which this whole event turns is this figure of King Herod. It's driven by his actions, by his decisions, and he's a guy who occupies a pretty tricky political position in his context as ruler over Jerusalem. You know, the Roman Empire rules the uh, surrounding area and everything, even within Jerusalem, and holds, obviously, a ton of sway. But there are these Jewish religious leaders who have tremendous cultural and social power in the city of Jerusalem. So King Herod, to put it in some kind of modern lingo, has to balance the interests of his base with the interests of the big shots in Washington, the Roman Empire. And a lot of times, the, the Jewish people that he's ruling over in the Romans have very different political agendas for what they think is right and wrong. So when this, these mysterious wise men from the East show up talking about someone who has just been born who is the king of the Jews, his ears perk up. If the Jewish people think that the promised Christ, their Savior, has been born as foretold in the ancient scriptures, and that this Christ figure is going to be a king, well, then he's in a lot of trouble. He's so afraid of losing his power that he hatches a scheme against an innocent baby who has been born in Bethlehem. His political savviness turns into paranoia. Those of you who are familiar with this story know that after this section that we read, Herod is so mad with these wise men and their thwarting of his plans that he actually orders the indiscriminate killing of infant boys in Bethlehem. The consequences of his paranoia are beyond tragic. So while at the most basic level of this story, things center around this ruler and his decisions and his actions, Matthew makes it clear that there is a higher level to things going on here too. Herod is absolutely responsible for his decisions, for the things that he does, But human politics isn't really what's driving things. It's just one small part of a much bigger story. First of all, there are all of these uh, strange and supernatural things that happen. An unexpected star that appears in the night sky, driving astronomers from a distant land to visit Israel. And then before they leave for home, they're warned in a dream about Herod's wicked scheme, and they change their travel plans. And then the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph, warning him of the same evil plot and telling him and his new wife and newborn child to flee to Egypt. Those examples of supernatural things tend to be what jumps out, jump out at us as we read this story, but there are a lot more uh, important and subtle details that Matthew includes that are really important for us understanding what's really going on here. Matthew really wants his readers to read the story of Jesus in the context of Israel's past. Israel, the chosen people of God, the main character of the story, if you will, 
up until uh, the scriptures up until this point. Matthew really wants us to read Jesus in this context. And all four of the Gospels do this to some degree, but it's a particular focus of Matthew connecting Jesus to the past. It's kind of like what sometimes happens with uh, origin stories for superheroes. You know, like the first superhero movie in a whole series. I'm thinking about something like Batman, where the director has to explain to us how this kind of normal guy, Bruce Wayne, becomes the Batman. And so most of the story will center around his adult life and the things that immediately transpire before his transformation. But then we also get these flashbacks to when he was a child. We don't really know what they're all about until the end. We don't know why they're important. But we know that there's something very significant about this character's past that shapes who he is today. And in Matthew's gospel, especially in these first couple of chapters, he keeps pausing and reminding us of the past, pointing us to things very far back that are important for who Jesus is. It feels like we can't get more than a few verses without him telling us you know, another way that Jesus fulfills this and that prophecy. And if you're familiar with the stories in Genesis and Exodus, you can't help but see the similarities of this account between Jesus' story and some of the great fathers of the Jewish faith, like Joseph and Moses, all the similarities in their, in their accounts. There's something remarkably important about the history of Israel for who this baby is, for who this child is. And while Jesus is still an infant, we're learning about what kind of a savior he's going to be. We're starting to get some important details. First of all, we know that he is part of a much bigger story than what's immediately going on around him. All these supernatural events, these references to the great prophets, are clearly significant to who he is. And if you've been worshiping with us throughout the Advent season, you might remember us Uh, reading a passage from Revelation 12 a few weeks ago where the author of Revelation, a guy named John, has this wonderful, richly symbolic vision of the end times and everything that leads up to them. And one of the things that he recounts is a vision he sees of this majestic woman up in the heavens who is pregnant and in labor. She's about to give birth. But standing before her is this great and terrible massive red dragon sweeping away the very stars in the sky as he stands before her, waiting for her to give birth so that he can devour her child. But the moment the baby is born, the Lord carries him away to keep him safe, and he sends the woman out into the wilderness where she will be safe from the dragon. What John sees in this vision is that Jesus' birth and his childhood is part of a much greater much bigger, cosmic story. There's something bigger going on here than just the story of a child. But we learn more than that about what kind of Savior this child is going to be, why he was born. This Savior came to suffer. This is the second thing that we learn. He came to suffer. He came to be despised and rejected by those who should have received him like a king. Jesus spends much of the rest of the book of Matthew serving and teaching and healing people And being constantly misunderstood, his closest friends don't really understand what his ministry is about most of the time. And then they betray him at his hour of deepest need and run away. The people that he's serving are really eager to receive his healing, obviously, but they're not really that interested in what he's actually trying to tell them. It's interesting that actually 
the demons that he drives out of people understand him better than most of the people he's serving. Again, another hint that something cosmic is going on here. And then he faces the worst suffering imaginable right at the end. It's actually greater suffering than we can really even comprehend as mere mortals. When he's beaten and tortured and hung on a cross, a death so painful that it was reserved only for the worst of criminals, as the promised Christ, he would go to the lowest of the lowest depths. There's no more fitting place for the Savior to be born than in a feeding trough in a barn, and there's no more fitting place for this baby to travel than to Egypt. Before he has even been allowed to go home, remember Bethlehem is not his home, Mary and Joseph are from Nazareth. Before he's even allowed to go home for the first time, he goes to Egypt, the most famous place of suffering for his people. For every Jewish person who heard the name Egypt, their mind would immediately form a connection to a place of bondage and of oppression, a place of slavery. And from this place of suffering, God calls his son. Out of Egypt I called my son. We read that in verse 15. It's another one of those moments where Matthew sees something really important going on in the ancient scriptures. This verse is uh, from Hosea 11. And this is where we learn the third thing about this Christ child, this infant Jesus and who he's going to be. He is a representative. He's part of a much bigger story. He came to suffer, and he came to be a representative savior. It's an incredible thing that Matthew does in this verse. It's a really strong statement that he makes. The relationship between the nation of Israel and their God and what we would consider the Old Testament was a familial one. Israel is often called a son. God wants Israel to think of him as their loving father. So this verse that Matthew quotes, the full verse reads, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. While they were still a child, while they were still in slavery, he called them out of Egypt. But then the problem is that after God calls them out of Egypt, sends them into freedom, away from their bondage, they keep running away from him. They worship other gods, the small regional gods of their neighbors, and in the process, they abandon the God of creation. They ignore his commands. They ignore justice individually and as a nation. They are unfaithful. God calls them out of Egypt, and they fail over and over again. And now at the very beginning of his life, God calls another out of Egypt in their place. This is who the Christ came to be. And at this point in the story, the question is, is he going to fail too? Just like everyone in the past has, Adam in the garden, the nation of Israel. And spoiler alert for the rest of Matthew, no, he doesn't fail. This time when God calls his son out of Egypt, he is everything that Israel was always meant to be. He is perfect righteousness. He is perfect justice. He is perfectly faithful to the people around him, even when they're faithless in response. And he is perfectly faithful in submitting to the will of his father. And he does all of this as a representative for the people of Israel. Because he is the Christ, because he is Emmanuel, God with us, this long-awaited Savior, when he lives a perfect life, he does so on behalf of the people of Israel. When he suffers, he does so on behalf of the people of Israel. And when he died, he took on the death 
that his people of Israel deserved. That's why he came to suffer, and that's why he came to die. And it all starts here. From the earliest moments of Christ's life, this grand story is in motion. While he is still a baby, God is orchestrating his story, bringing about his plan of salvation, taking horrible events and using them to bring about redemption, raising up a savior from terrible circumstances. It reminds us of the story of Joseph in Genesis, who also was forced to go down to Egypt, but in his case, because of the betrayal of his brothers who sold him into slavery. And Joseph spends most of his life in Egypt as a, as a slave, a servant, and then a prisoner. And then eventually, he actually becomes a very powerful man whose foresight and wisdom ends up saving the lives of many, many people, including his own family. And late in his life, in a climactic scene, he gets to meet his brothers again for the first time in years, and he forgives them. And he says to them, one of the most beautiful phrases in the Bible, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. On a human level, this uh, story that we read tonight, this account of Jesus's flight to Egypt, it's a very chaotic story. It's not as you would picture it for the coming of the Messiah, but it becomes perfectly ordered when it is seen in the magnificent story of redemption that is part of God's grand story. The reason why Jesus is despised and rejected by so many people that he comes to serve is that they had a very small vision of who they thought their Savior was going to be, too small. They thought the Christ would come to save them from their current political circumstances. They couldn't believe how grand the scope of his actual saving ministry was going to be. They missed that the Christ would come for much bigger purposes, that God had eternal plans in mind when he sent his Christ for his people. We read this earlier on in Isaiah 49. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant and raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring, them, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God's plan of salvation as he speaks to this suffering servant, the coming Christ, was never just for one small ethnic group of people. The Christ child would grow up to be a cosmic savior. He is Emmanuel, God with us, for anyone who would look upon him in faith. And when he fulfills the great story of the people of Israel, he throws the doors open and invites anyone who will come to be a part of his story. I think our stories can often seem um, small and insignificant when we think about them in the grand scheme of things. I hear some people offer this solution to dream big, to change the world, to achieve significance by doing big and important things. But that's not the solution that the Christ offers. He says to us, be faithful where I have called you, whatever your circumstances are. And if you share in my story, you could not possibly be any more significant. I have amazing plans for this world, a new creation. Come and be a part of it. Sometimes it can be easy to uh, think of the story of Christmas as a very distant story, just something that happened a long time ago. And yeah, we might really like the traditions and some of the elements of the story, like the wise men and the animals and the angels. 
and the shepherds. But the truth is, the Christmas story is just the beginning of our story. We're not the main character. Jesus is the main character. But he doesn't hog the spotlight for himself. He does all the work and then he shares all the glory. Jesus isn't out here singing a solo. He's bringing a whole choir on stage. The story of Revelation that we've uh, spent the last few weeks looking through as a church, that's our story too. The coming reunion at the end of all things, the coming victory, the coming feast, it's all our story. And when, and when Christ returns to usher in his new creation, we're not going to be sitting on the couch watching it on TV or reading about it in the news. We will be there. We'll be right there. It will be our story. We'll be singing in the great choir, eating the great feast, and experiencing the glory of that perfect world. Because out of Egypt, God has called his son for each and every one of us. Will you all please pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your ministry to us, that you would speak to us and walk among us, that you would heal and teach and live and take our place uh, where we need it most. Father, we, uh, we thank you for sending your son on our behalf. And we pray that as we go out from this place tonight, that you would fill us afresh with the hope of this message. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.